0: Welcome to the April 2008 edition of the Ordinary Means podcast. Uh, that's OrdinaryMeans.com on the web. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, and here with me today is my good friend, Matt Bowling. Howdy, Matt. Hey. hey, Sean, how are you? Doing well. Um, we are recording today, and we'll be recording from here on out uh, over the internet. So, I suppose at some point we could bring folks on and have live question and answer or something along along that, something of that nature. Uh, but today we're recording uh, via Skype. Now, having said that, I know that we're going to get all sorts of questions from fellow podcasters going, how do you do this? So, I will. Uh, I'll make a plan to put some information up there if anybody wants how to record a podcast over Skype. But then the, uh, the sound quality of this could be completely awful, in which case nobody is going to want to know how to do this over Skype. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. Uh, well, this, uh, this morning for us, it's morning for us, it's a little earlier for Matt, he's out on the West Coast, uh, I'm on the East Coast, and what we wanted to talk about this month was the relationship between Presbyterians and Baptists. Now, right there, I'm opening a can of worms. Uh, we realize that. Uh, but this is an issue that has been addressed. It's been addressed very nicely, very cordially, uh, by Presbyterians and Baptists of the Reformed persuasion just in recent years. And so what we want to talk about today is particularly, uh, will, can a Presbyterian worship worship? with Baptists. Can a Presbyterian join a Baptist church? Let's say uh, you've got a Presbyterian in the middle of an area that doesn't have Presbyterian churches, but it has good, solid Baptist churches. Same thing the other way around. A Baptist in an area that doesn't have solid Baptist churches, can they join a Presbyterian church? And here's the sticky point, where does baptism come into all this? So that's, that's what we'd like to talk about today. Um, I want to start by by sharing a little story. Matt, is okay if I share a little story? Go for it. Okay, uh, this is um this is a story. This is there was a Presbyterian and Baptist. They were talking, uh, they were discussing this issue, and the Presbyterian the Presbyterian said to the Baptist, uh, said now let me get get this straight. He said he said now you believe that a person isn't baptized unless they've been fully immersed in water. Is that correct? And the Baptist says, yes, that's correct. I believe full immersion, not pouring or sprinkling, is what has to take place in order for somebody to be officially baptized. Well, the, the Presbyterian thought for a minute about this, and he he, um, he said, okay, what if you walked a person into a stream up to their ankles? Would that consist in an actual baptism Baptist said no Presbyterian said well okay what if you get them in past their knees does that consist of a, of a baptism he says no it's not good enough it has to be full immersion Presbyterian said okay if they waited up to the waist baptized Baptist says no Mm-mm. okay Presbyterian says I says sorry please forgive me I'm a little slow um, just be patient with me a couple more questions uh, he says what if it was up to the chest in the river, he says no. Presbyterian neck, no. Uh, Presbyterian says okay. Up to the eyebrows. If their eyeballs are under the water, does it count as baptism? The Baptist says no. I told you, they've got to be immersed. And the Presbyterian finally, the Presbyterian says, I think I understand now. You and I agree after all. The Baptist says, Oh my goodness, I, have I convinced you that you need to be immersed? The Presbyterian says, says. Well, no, 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 actually, you've convinced me that we don't need to be immersed. And the Baptist says, what? What do you mean? He says, "He says, well, you've convinced me that the only thing important is getting the top of the head wet.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, <clears throat> having opened on that note, uh, here we are. We're a couple Presbyterians talking about Baptists. We really should have asked a... Uh, Fellow Baptist to get in on this discussion, it would have
1: made it very lively um, yeah, but we we have that planning problem thing,
0: yeah, in terms of when we can get yeah. on and record a podcast anyway um, so yes, well, hey, if you are a uh, if you're a Baptist and you'd like to respond to this podcast, share it with your friends, uh, annoy your friends with my bad humor, um, please feel free to to share uh, to share this around well th- that having been said. Um, Obviously, Matt, you and I are coming from the perspective, uh, personally, that uh, we think it's only necessary for a person to get wet. Uh, We do believe that immersion is valid. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, don't let me put words in your mouth, but uh, we both believe immersion is valid but we also believe sprinkling or or pouring is valid. I know when I baptized I I I prefer to get as much water as possible involved. Um, so that I could just see that sound bite showing up on the internet. Uh, <laughs> when I get baptized I like as much water as possible. So that being the case w- when I uh when I talk with my my baptist friends and they say well no it's got to get. It's got to be the whole thing. We can't just be a little water. It's got to be the whole thing in water. Um, are, are they just being legalistic?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it, certainly that's not not the Baptist friends that I have. I don't think they're being legalistic. But I think that it's it's a, you know it's a solid conviction about a debate over a word. Um, you know, does uh, baptizo? Does it? Is it the requirement? of the Word, and of course, there's been good debate between Baptists and Presbyterians for years, you can read the classic stuff on that, John Murray deals with it in his book, Christian Baptism, and the Baptists deal with it very well, and each marshals their case and says, you know, the context demands that this is, you know, completely underwater, and the Presbyterian comes along and says, well, there's other instances in the broader literature where it doesn't. Mean that it's underwater, and so uh, no, I think that it's a it's a genuine live open debate um, in terms of the mode of baptism. Um, you know whether when we mode of baptism we mean uh, immersion or pouring or sprinkling. So no, I don't think that it's legalistic. I think that it, they're genuinely seeking to honor the Lord. You don't think it's the same as um,
0: can can we use leavened bread in communion?
1: Versus unleavened bread. You're saying, are they on the same level? The debate,
0: yeah. Um,
1: no, I think they're on a little bit different level than that, because I think that there's been, um, you know, genuine debate throughout the history of the church about the the type of bread or even the type of of liquid used, and that's not cro- and that's crossed over different um, historically. Denominational lines uh, or branches of the churches, as as, uh, as our Book of Church Order calls it, which I think is helpful. Um, so, I, I think that it's a little bit different different genre of argument than that. Um, it might be more along the genre of um, "ought bread be physically broke of the congregation." Uh, that would be more, I think, um, along the lines. So it's, it's the way um, something is actually done, not the stuff it's done with. Which, by the way, bread should, ought to be broken. It's part of the sacrament, in my view. So in these very large churches, sometimes that's difficult to do, and you lose some of the symbolism. But that's a debate for another time.
0: And you mean specifically... When the bread comes to me i 'm breaking off a piece. is that what you 're saying
1: that 's my preference that that's it, that 's the way that it works i'm not so i 'm um, not so passionate about that, but whether the minister actually breaks something up in the front that people can see that 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 motion uh, is important to the sacrament okay
0: uh, one note uh, and you may not be aware of this if you're in the PCA and listening to this podcast. Uh, in our fencing of the table it is interesting I just noted this recently that the words that we say are not this is the body of Christ broken for you but rather this is the body of Christ given for you I it's side note it's obviously not the topic of this podcast but that's something I I noticed uh, just recently you might want to uh, you might want to Check on. I'm not sure why historically that is, um, because certainly the the, be- the bread is broken, uh, but Christ's words, I, I'll have to double check this, but I'm I'm fairly certain Christ's words were, "This is my body given for you, not my body broken for you." Right. Um, right. Anyway, that's a side note. We'll come back to that in another podcast. Uh, Coming back to this issue of where this debate lies, um, it seems to me that the sticking point is the issue, uh, not so much of the the mode, although the mode does come into play, and I think the Baptist would say uh, that we're serious about the mode because it's the mode that we believe the Bible teaches. And so what they're trying to do is effectively apply the regulative principle to baptism. And, and that's very good. Um, uh, there's absolutely. also the issue of, of whether or not faith is present in the one being baptized. So we've got the sticking point of the mode, that is, is it immersion or is it sprinkling? And then we've got the sticking point of, is faith present? So obviously for the Baptists, they would discount all infant baptisms.
1: Irrelevant of the mode. I, it, I mean, I've never seen a baby immersed, but perhaps there are places where they do that. Well,
0: I'm told that Calvin said, uh, of infants, if at all possible, immerse. By the way, if somebody can find that quote, please send it to me, but people smarter than I have said that quote exists. Um, So Calvin was for the immersion even of infants. Hmm. But, uh, but yes, as you're saying, uh, across the board, an infant baptism is not accepted for membership in a Baptist church. Right. So we've got a couple sticking points. Now, a lot of the controversy surrounding this issue recently has uh, come from Bethlehem Baptist Church where uh, John Piper is the pastor and uh, what they wanted to do uh, this was back in I think late 2005 Um, uh, yes, I've got a date here of September 2005 so it's probably August of that year Uh, they uh, were bringing emotion to their congregation. Because at Bethlehem Baptist, because John Piper is a, uh, a solid, reformed pastor, there are a lot of Presbyterians going there. And they ran into this issue of, wow, there's all these Presbyterians here, they're worshiping with us every Sunday, they're communing with us. This is interesting. Baptist churches have an open view of communion that allows... Presbyterians to commune with them...
1: So non-members of that local church?
0: Yes. Non-members, Presbyterians, uh, who have faith, who are a member in good standing of their Presbyterian denomination, can commune, generally speaking, in a Baptist church. Now, there may be exceptions... That's
1: that's interesting. That's interesting. Because if you follow... And I don't want to pick up my Baptist friends too much, but if you follow the theology out... For example, my let's just pick my oldest son Jacob, all right, or your oldest Hannah, and we were to go to Bethlehem Baptist Church, and our children, um, you know, uh, we believe they if they're, if we believe they're trusting in Christ, uh, we would bring them to the table, and yet the Baptist thinks that that Jacob or Hannah are not baptized believers, which is interesting that they would admit them to the table.
0: Now I'm not sure they would admit an un Huh I you know I I I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not sure somebody's going to have to correct me on this if I'm if I'm incorrect but my understanding is they they also in a Baptist church would want you to be a member somewhere having made a profession of faith. And so like okay. my oldest if has if made to, a Hannah's public profession. That. Yeah, Hannah has right. done it. So, um, whereas, has Jacob made a public profession of faith? No. Okay. So theoretically, Hannah could come to the table. My my nine year old could come to the table in a Baptist church because she's a full member of our church.
1: But which I, I'm in agreement with. But it's just interesting because usually we would not want, as Presbyterians, an unbaptized person. Coming to the Lord's Supper, so we do not want them to have a no, not, un-
0: not unbaptized. Sacrament. You mean uh, someone who hasn't made a profession of faith?
1: Well, no. Typically, we admit people to the Lord's Supper who are members in good standing, and they've become members in good standing because when they became a member, they got baptized. If they had not been previously baptized, yes. so generally speaking, the line is: before someone comes to the table, they're baptized. So I guess I'm tracking this backwards is if somebody comes to the Lord's table in my church, um, the expectation is that they're a member in good standing of some church, ours or another one, and that part of that expectation of becoming a member is if they weren't baptized, they were baptized when they became a member of the church. But your typical Baptist, and perhaps I'm wrong and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, would think that Hannah is not baptized because she is, was not immersed. Yes. But yet they'd let her come to the table. Well, the, the typical So in a sense, they have a looser standard, quote-unquote, um, than we would. On communion,
0: they're they're looser on communion than Presbyterians, but they're tighter right. on, Baptist, on baptism than Presbyterians.
1: Maybe that's a good way to put it.
0: I, take what you just said, take that, um, if I could take that a little bit further... You can think about it this way. Um, With regard to baptism, Presbyterians and Baptists require three things. They require, um, I'm sorry, rather, two things. They require a profession of faith and baptism. Now, the Presbyterian says those two things do not need to come at the same time.
1: Coterminously, right
0: Yes, so the Presbyterian says You can be baptized as an infant But not make your profession of faith Until you're 16, 20, 40, whatever age You make your profession at And then according to the Presbyterian system At that point that you make the profession Your baptism becomes valid Or valid may not be the best term But your your baptism is fulfilled Your baptism is complete Mm Mm-hmm the Baptist, however, says they must happen at the same time. Now, if we follow that logic, and this is this is where uh, Grudem goes, where I disagree with Wayne Grudem, uh, who is, by the way, Wayne Grudem is a uh, professor at Phoenix Seminary. He is um, the author of a uh, a very good, for the most part, uh, a very good, a very respected systematic theology. Um, Grudem is also a Reformed Baptist charismatic.
1: So he would fit, for example, most hopefully in a Sovereign Grace Church, if you're. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, Grudem, uh, would fit very well in the Sovereign Grace Church. So, and this is where I think, uh, the logic falls through is the, uh, is if the two must be coterminous, faith and the baptism, if an adult who's never been baptized makes a profession of faith, receives baptism in a Baptist church, is immersed, they are now a member, they're now permitted to come to the table. What if, three years down the line, that individual comes to the conclusion that at the time of their initial profession, they were not a Christian. Though they gave a credible profession, they come to the conclusion, no, I was still in my sins, but now, three years later, I have become a Christian. My question is, do they need to be immersed again? And it seems to me that if the answer is yes, we're falling into a reliance upon human declaration of personal faith, rather than a reliance upon the God who gives his promises in baptism.
1: Well, and I think that that's one of the most helpful things, if you're someone who is struggling with this issue, and and just let us, both of us, reiterate, we have wonderful Baptist friends that we love, that we enjoy spending time with, that that we are (laughs) longing to spend time with in Heaven and and find out... uh, you know, theologically, where we were on and off, both of us. Um, and we like putting so, water
0: on them. Like, whenever my Baptist friends come around, I get out the squirt gun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Actually, they get out the bucket, I get out the squirt
1: gun. <laughs> um, but I think that the that typical Baptist theology that I've been aware of, and I'm sure we'll have some some of our own Reformed Baptist friends um, correct us if we're wrong on this, which we're, we're happy to be corrected, um, would be, Yeah. And here's the reason why. Um, And if this is an issue that you struggle with in terms of baptism, I have to recommend to you, and Sean will put this up on the blog and the the resource list for this podcast. Um, Harry Reeder, who who is a PCA minister in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, did a three session video series when he was still at Christ covenant uh, in Matthews, North Carolina on the covenantal nature of baptism. Um, And, Uh, It's very helpful if you're just getting introduced to this issue. Um, My wife, uh, most of my experience in churches since I came to Christ uh, 18 years ago uh, has been in in Presbyterian churches. Um, Most of my wife's experience prior to our marriage uh, was not. And so this was an issue as we were going through seminary that was challenging to her because most of the teaching that she'd experienced was um, of a a credo-baptist, a Baptist upon profession variety. And so so, um, this video series really helped her. And here's the crucial thing that really helped my wife when when she was personally wrestling through this. The, The crucial issue, it seems, who's talking in baptism? If the believer's talking... And saying, I've trusted in Christ, and I would like the sign that seals that, my trusting in Christ, and I'm the one speaking in baptism. um, Then it makes sense for them to be baptized again. And and this is an area of difference, um, at least as I have found uh, with some of my Baptist friends, is that we believe God's the one who's speaking in baptism. He's the one there proclaiming his gospel of grace. And so, if God's speaking, it happened. But if 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 the person being baptized is speaking, then it might not have, because they might not have been speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get into what we would say is a rebaptism. They say, uh, I think they would say, um, you know, that the baptism actually didn't happen because it wasn't joined with a true faith; it was just water not an uh, in, in ordinance, as they would put it, uh, that time. It was just water. The guy just went and got wet, because it wasn't joined with true faith.
0: Well, we would say the same thing about communion, that it's, to take communion without faith is to eat and drink judgment. Similarly, to receive baptism without faith uh, is... Uh, is to eat and drink judgment in terms of an adult um, in terms of an adult making a public profession of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's I think that your answer ties to why we allow an infant baptism is because we believe that God is speaking and that God is issuing promises to a covenant child that God isn't issuing to children that are outside of the covenant right. And uh, so similarly, as as I'm sure we've said before, we'll say again, uh, the same way that Abraham issued circumcision to his eight-day-old sons, um, actually, um, Ishmael was a little bit older, uh, in the same way that that Abraham gave circumcision to them, ironically, after God told Abraham that Ishmael would not live before him, Abraham still gives Ishmael circumcision. So mm-hmm. the promises belong to the children of believers, but that doesn't mean just like Ishmael walked away, it doesn't mean those promises will all be received by those children. So there's a difference between the giving of the promise, which is how we view baptism, Mm-hmm. and the reception of the promise which is profession of faith
1: the old new england puritans used to call it owning the covenant
0: yes now um back to the issue with bethlehem baptist church oh oh one thing you made me think of there's also a letter have you seen this letter dennis johnson to his daughter
1: Oh, 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 oh! Years ago, years ago, I, it's somewhere in some binder here in my merry messy office. I just moved into, but but not not recently. Is it on the web? I don't know if it is. Uh, if it isn't, I will talk
0: to Dennis and see if we can make that available online. I can I can put that on our server. Maybe um, describe it
1: for people if, since it's not available to them.
0: Yes, uh, I think we can put that up I've got a, I have have it in Word doc, we can easily put a PDF of it up It's a letter from Dennis Johnson Who is um, professor of practical theology Or is he, is he New
1: Testament now at Westminster? Yeah. He was New Testament, now he's practical theology
0: Now he's practical theology He um, wrote a letter to his daughter Describing uh, his thoughts as he went through his life On this issue of infant baptism and it's just a very personal letter talking about, uh, the transition in his own thinking over time. And so it's very helpful to, to think about this issue. So I will, we'll put a link up. We'll, we'll try to make that available to you. Uh, that said, uh, going back to the Bethlehem Baptist issue, what happened was in 2005, they tried to make it, uh, and this is a position that was held by, uh, John Bunyan, uh, was a position in which the church received both Baptists and Presbyterians. And they tried to apply this at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Initially, all but two of their elders were strongly in favor of it. Uh, Then they had a period of time, they released a document to the congregation. The congregation studied it, they taught on it. And then when they came back to review uh, the number of elders who... um, who disagreed with it, uh, grew. I think it went up to three or four of the elders. And so they decided that it was best that they hold off. And as far as I know, that's where they are right now. Uh, But this this is what John Piper originally wrote. He said, "...membership requirements at Bethlehem should move toward being roughly the same as the requirements for membership in the universal body of Christ." That is, we have come to the conclusion that it is seriously questionable to say to a person who gives good evidence of being a true Christian, and who wants to join Bethlehem, you may not join. So that was how Piper put it originally. Now, if you go to the Bethlehem Baptist Church now, there is a document uh, on the site entitled Present Status of the Baptism and Membership Issue, and... uh, there were basically told that the motion was withdrawn, and the reason it was re- withdrawn was that at the December 6th, 2005 Elder Council meeting, a few elders who previously voted in favor no longer supported it. Uh, then Then the question is asked, what is the plan for dealing with this issue? And then I'll read this. The elders realize that the issue cannot be dropped because the majority of the elders still favor the motion, including almost all the pastoral staff. And because that conviction puts most of the elders and staff in conflict with at least one literal reading of the Bethlehem Affirmation of Faith, our Affirmation of Faith defines the local church as, quote, We believe in the local church consisting of a company of believers in Jesus Christ, baptized on a credible profession of faith, and associated for worship, work, and fellowship. And then then it says, In the most narrow reading, this definition would mean that a gospel-preaching Presbyterian church, for example, is not a church. And that's that's an important note. Uh, And I'm I'm proud of Bethlehem Baptist Church for acknowledging that essentially what their theology is doing, their doctrine of of it must be immersion, is essentially saying that we aren't Christians.
1: No, I think that's a little too strong, Sean, because I I think that what they're trying to say is that certainly there are some in Presbyterian churches that are baptized upon profession. So what they would say is that there are some... Probably the, the most charitable read of it would be to say that, that some in that Presbyterian church have been properly baptized, and some have not been baptized at all. So they would, they would certainly say that that church would be part of the universal church, but they would say that it's a, it's a poorly constructed local church.
0: Aren't we winding up, though, then, with a view similar to the way the Catholic church views the Protestant church?
1: Um, I don't think
0: so, because... Where you've got Christians uh, who are the ones who've been immersed, and then you've got the lesser Christians who are the ones who haven't yet been baptized properly.
1: But this is one of the things that I love about the PCA, because we would consider... So, um, Bethlehem Baptist is a member of the uh, BGC, Baptist General Conference. Uh, We would call the BGC, uh, as it maintains the gospel in purity a branch of Christ's church. Um, and I think that the BGC would consider the PCA a branch of Christ's church, uh, recognizing that some of the branches, while they hold may well hold the gospel in integrity, and we expect... He, here's the way that, that I try and teach it to people. If somebody, a denomination is a branch of Christ's church, if those who listen to the doctrine of that church as it's taught are go- going to end up in heaven, if they're not going to end up in heaven, then they're not a branch of Christ's church. And that's to me, is the, the bright dividing line. So if somebody sits under the preaching of a pastor for a year and believes what is said, will they come to true faith and repentance in Christ and adopt that lifestyle of repentance and faith and walk with Christ to the end of their life? Is that what is taught there? And if it is, that's a branch of Christ's church because I'm expecting to meet the person in heaven. And I think that that's, that is what I think is helpful about Piper's original stance, and I think also helpful about the way that the PCA has addressed this as a denomination, is just to say, if I'm going to meet somebody in heaven, you know what? Boy, we ought to be able to be members in the same church. Now, that that's not to say that they could be officers in the same church. No, no. Because you, even if I have uh, a Reformed Baptist uh, brother in my church— whom I love, whom I would let teach, for example, um, Sunday school classes. If they're if they're just trying to advance their view, um, I'm not I'm very. I would not have them as an elder. I'd be very unlikely to even have them as a deacon. Um, but as a ministry leader, other than that, for sure, um, assuming that they were circumspect, um, you know, and didn't try to advance their view in, in um, you know overturning the the teaching view that the church has. Um, so I, I think that where Piper's view is, is where the PCA actually is right now. Uh, and I think that's a very respectable place to be. If someone is going to go to heaven and I expect to see them there, boy, I sure ought to be able to, to be a brother with them now.
0: Yes, I, I agree. And this is, if you're not familiar, the PCA allows anyone who has made a credible profession of faith to be a member of its churches. And so this is this is a distinction and I think that's why this document on the Bethlehem Baptist Church website draws out this point that a literal reading of their affirmation of faith is essentially saying that a gospel preaching presbyterian church is not a true church. And I think that's where Piper and others on the staff there and it sounds like a great majority of their elders Came to see that and said, "You know what? The, these things should not be right." And that's why I'm excited about things like um, this. Together for the Gof- together for the gospel conference right. uh, that's going on in April, where you've got a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Reformed, Charismatic. Plus, you've got uh, Sproul and MacArthur, and uh, I think Piper is coming back again this year. So you've just in got Haiti. A- yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, Mahaney and Moeller and, and, and all of these guys together in one room saying, We love Jesus. <laughs> Amen. You know, yeah, and absolutely. I think we've got to I- anything that is tending towards an unbiblical judgmentalism needs needs to be set to the side. But again, coming back to the regulative principle, or even Matt, you mentioned who am I going to heaven with? Um, Classically, we've said that the marks of the true church are the preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. Now, right there on that second one, we've got a disagreement with some of our Baptist brothers in that they say we're not rightly administering the sacraments. Right. And so, on that level... You know there I- there is a real tension here, and I, I long to see that tension um, relieved, done away with. Um, particularly, I think most
1: of that dial- most of that dialogue though ab- about the marks of the church and the right administration of the sacraments um, was in con- contrast to the the Roman Catholic institution. I- I'm not sure that all of that all of that language development, and I could be wrong here. I, I'm sure we could, someone, as someone who's better in church history than I am, you know, say that, that that language developed in response to um, you know, Anabaptism's response to, or, or Credo-Baptism's response to, um, to Reformed Presbyterian thinking. But my sense is that that rightly administering the sacraments was as opposed to Rome. Um, not as opposed to necessarily the distinction between credo and pedos. Uh, I could be wrong in that. I don't have been No, certainly but.
0: you're right. That was probably its original sense. But right. I, I think what I'm trying to point out is that there is a contemporary sense in which it is being suggested, and that's what these documents from Bethlehem Baptist are bringing out, is there seems to be a, not seems to be, there is a distinction being made between uh, Baptists and Presbyterians on the basis of what uh, our Baptist brothers are calling um, a wrong administration of the sacraments.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, so, it, I, I would love to see this relieved. I don't know if we're going to see this relieved in our lifetime uh, because this is not a new issue. Um... And yet, it isn't an issue that should divide us. Now, funny story here. When I first met my wife, uh, she was not my wife when I first met her. Funny Um, how that is. (laughs) But she asked me, you know, are you a Christian? And I said, yes. And she said, where do you go to church? And I said, I go to a a PCA. Do you know what that stands for? No, I don't know what that stands for. I said, stands for Presbyterian Church in America. And she said, and you're a Christian? So the the mainline Presbyterian church in America has, at least that's who I blame it on, has really given Presbyterians a bad name in America specifically. Right. And so we always have to explain, you know, any that I'm anywhere that I... If somebody asks me what my denomination is or where I pastor, I always have to explain that I'm a Bible believing, gospel believing Presbyterian. And and I don't believe, and this is where I agree with my Baptist brethren, I don't believe that baptism saves you. Um, I don't have a Catholic view, a Roman Catholic view of baptism. I have a view of baptism, which I believe that baptism, when combined with faith, is an instrument of God's grace to us, but that what saves you is purely God's grace to us. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Nothing else. Right. right. And so I don't want the sacraments—I want them to be a right demonstration of what we believe, but I don't want— the minutia of them to divide us.
1: Right, right. And and I would just say, um, we, Sean and I both went to Westminster Seminary in California, and um, I have to say that I thoroughly appreciated the Reform brothers that we went to seminary with, because I think that that much of the work that's been done at least in the last 15 years, by Credo Baptists, um, has been very noteworthy and very helpful um, in that some of the stereotypical things that you would hear, you might have heard when Sean and I were, were both um, just barely Christians in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the, the brothers don't say that kind of thing anymore. They they're I'm not saying that they've come closer to us, they've maintained their own convictions. But it's it's a much more nuanced, um, and I think much more helpful, much more covenantal, much more um, <sighs> I think picking up maybe some of the points that the the Presbyterian Reformed have gotten along the way. Um, and and I think it's sharpened us as well. And um, that I think the dialogue has been very, very helpful. Very, um, I don't know what's the right word. Um,
0: well, it's definitely served to bring us closer together.
1: Yeah, I would, I would liken it to – Although it's not in the same realm of of debate, I would liken it to the difference between classic Schofield dispensationalism and a, a nuanced progressive dispensationalism of a guy like Daryl Bach. Yeah, is that's, that I think that, that's a good that, example. He's picked up things and said, "You're right. I see that." And that the progressive dispensationalists of today, the way it would be being taught, perhaps even at Biola, where Sean went to college, or, or, or um, well, let's just pick Biola. It, the way it's being taught today is quite a bit different than you would have gotten, you know, in the heyday of, of uh, you know, late great Planet Earth. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the, that's the helpful. old Dallas. Is it where the old Dallas style, right. And, and I think that that's helpful because I, I I suspect that some of my Reformed Baptist brothers would even say that at baptism, it is God who's speaking. And I wonder if over time and that will mean um, that, that baptisms won't be done again, that it's upon profession, not necessarily upon possession. Because that's really the difference. Um, in, in the example that you gave, quote a while back, Sean. That was a profession without possession. And so is it baptism upon possession? Or is it baptism upon profession? Um, and if it's baptism upon profession, then it shouldn't be done again. Um, you know, it was professed. God's, I spoke. God spoke. Um, and he's not taking back what he said. So if he's not taking back what he said, uh, um, say it again. So uh, I'll be interested to see over how, there how things up uh, in this, this sort of ongoing dialogue.:
0: A passage that comes to mind that I think is rightly applied to this situation is in the book of Acts, uh, where Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, is converted, and an angel of the Lord appears to him, says, "Send for Peter." Uh, And then God goes before Cornelius' messenger to Peter. Remember, he's on the rooftop, he's hungry. And uh, God's messenger goes to Peter first because God knows that Peter needs to learn something before he can receive these messengers from Cornelius. And that's where uh, God gives Peter this vision of the sheet being lowered and on that sheet are clean and unclean animals. Right. And uh, and God says to Peter, says, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then God's response to him is, Peter, what I have cleansed, no longer consider
1: unclean.
0: And he does this three times, and finally... Peter gets it. and Takes him a knock. little while, though. Takes him a little while. And then, you know, knock, knock, the, the um, uh, Gentile messengers show up at the door, and Peter goes with them. And I think <clears throat> what needs to happen is that our Reformed Baptist brethren need to come to the point where they see... We aren't unclean. We don't do everything exactly like them, but that doesn't mean we're unclean.
1: Right, right. Similar, similar scenario. That's helpful, I think.
0: Now another resource on this that um, we we mentioned Grudem, we mentioned Piper. There is actually online a discussion then uh, when Grudem. Uh, released recently, uh, recently I think it's been a, a year or so. Released uh, a revision to his systematic theology. He added a section uh, within the chapter on baptism uh, where he changed his mind. It's a section entitled "Do Churches Need to Be Divided Over Baptism?" And Grudem comes to the position: Yes, they do need to be divided over baptism. Um, because only immersion is a valid baptism. I'm summarizing the argument. Uh, Well, Piper was made aware of this change to the systematic, and so online Piper responded to Grudem, and then uh, Grudem uh, responded back to Piper, and it went back and forth a couple times, and the, the two were dear friends, and so there's nothing... Uh, you know there was it's nothing not
1: acrimonious yeah. no
0: there was nothing inflammatory going on, anything like that um, but it it brought out uh, this whole issue, which by the way, this is kind of funny is uh, G- wayne grudem 's wife. Actually agrees with John Piper <laughs> and not with Wayne ah. Grudem, so there's hope for Grudem uh, that he needs to just listen to his wife and eventually he'll come around, uh, which is probably the case with most of us. We just need to listen to our wife and and we'll come around. All will be well. No, <laughs> um, so that is available online, and I will put all the links uh, up there on the uh, on the blog post when we post this. And uh, hopefully that will be of help to you. Hopefully that will be of encouragement to you, particularly um, uh, if you want to let your your Reformed Baptist friends know about this podcast. We want to you know welcome them into the family, and we'd like to be welcomed into their family, too. Uh, it
1: might even be helpful if you've got a Reformed Baptist friend, and we, we have a few. Maybe it would be good, Sean, if we could get Matt Layton, if he could pipe in from Spain. That would be real interesting, I think because it would bring a a neat perspective from a friend.
0: Definitely, I think that would be a great idea if we could do uh, something like a follow-up to this podcast, maybe uh, in uh, May or or June's podcast, uh, get some more people together, continue this discussion. I think it's an important discussion, because again, uh, there's something that's dividing Christians, You know what I'm saying? There's something that's dividing Christians, and if the Scripture, the New Testament, is clear on something, it's that we need to have unity. Right. And um, so if we can serve to uh, push some of these divisions uh, away, I think that'll be a wonderful thing. For
1: sure. Well,
0: I want to thank you all for joining us uh, for this podcast. Uh, Again, uh, you can find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com. Or ordinarymeans.blogspot.com is where we post uh, the updates, and if you're one of these people who reads a, a feeder, an RSS feeder, you can uh, you can subscribe uh, at that site. Uh, the other place you can subscribe is on iTunes. Um, you can hey you can set your iPod up just to download us every month. What a how easy is that? Uh, well, thank you for joining us, Matt. Always good to uh, sit and chat with you. I look forward to um, uh, seeing you in just a week or so here at Twin Lakes. Yep. And uh, I am i don't know. I, I'm guessing that there'll be somebody blogging that. So if folks want to listen in, uh, maybe we'll be able to put up a link to that. Uh, that said, thank you all for joining us. And may God richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means.